0: Let us turn to the Gospel of Mark once again. We are looking at verses 33 this morning through 37. 33 through 37. Please give your attention to the holy, infallible Word of God. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, He must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask, O oh Lord, that our hearts would be filled with the humility of Christ through Thy Spirit. We ask, O oh God, Your direction in our lives always in terms of that wonderful grace that we have knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Preserve us in that grace each day. In Christ's name, amen. Perhaps some of us here this morning... can remember the flamboyant and humorous character of the arrogant and prideful personality of Muhammad Ali shouting before the world these words I am the greatest oh the desire to be the greatest the best in the world or in one's vocation or in one's sport or maybe even in one's family. In terms of my own vices, who is the greatest football, baseball and basketball player of all time? Perhaps for some of you, who is the greatest composer of music of all time the greatest contemporary singing group the greatest writer the greatest film the greatest president of all time i am sure that these are a few areas that we could have some interesting debates about even In our own congregation perhaps even next week get the fellowship dimmer you at your table can get into a discussion (laughs) about one of these things our human nature of being the best and the greatest is seductive to the human soul it can receive passionate acceleration with our own mouths well, is it a surprise to our human nature to find this morning that the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest among Jesus' own disciples? No. Perhaps, as you follow the flow of Mark's gospel, we may be thinking, Peter, Peter, as the greatest. After all, he is the one who first confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But wait, that doesn't seem to work, does it? Because Christ has to rebuke Peter for Peter's own rebuke of our Lord about the path to his death and his resurrection. Get behind me, Satan. Wait a second, maybe there is a moment of reclaiming Peter's position as the greatest. Is he not the lead name, the lead name going up on the mountain and being a witness of Christ's transfiguration along with James and John? And could it not be that even James and John could make an argument themselves for being the greatest since Christ chose them and not the other nine disciples to witness that glorious transfiguration. Furthermore, even though Peter went with them, James and John were not rebuked by Christ either. earlier like Peter, get me behind me Satan. But as it turns out, Peter, James, or John have no claim of being the greatest because they witnessed the transfiguration. After all, these three disciples have no clue what is at the very heart of Christ's mission in terms of Christ's redemption for sinful humanity. They have no clue Of what Jesus means by the resurrection, his own resurrection. Chapter 9, verse 10. Oh, the pride of the human heart, of wanting to be known as the greatest, the best. In our case, the greatest pupil of Jesus' followers, the best in Jesus' exclusive classroom training, the greatest disciple. Now, as you think about the disciples arguing about who is the greatest disciple, do not miss the providential path of Christ in our text here before us. Previously, The disciples were arguing with the scribes about who, about why they could not cast out the demon in the father's son. You remember that text. As they are arguing with the scribes, they do not know why they failed to cast out the demon in the father's son. Their whole defense is without any factual knowledge as to their failure. And furthermore, no matter what the scribes are arguing, they do not have a clue either as to why the disciples failed. Like so many arguments without the facts, they are expounding nonsense to each other. It's like social media. Once Christ's own disciples learned the facts, you would think it would be humbling. Yes, they had in front, they had a front row seat to Christ's own supernatural intervention to remove the unclean spirit out of the Father's Son. They were privy to see Christ's compassionate response to the Father's prayer-like plea. I believe, Help my unbelief, 9:24. In contrast to the Father's prayer-like plea, Jesus provides the facts about the disciples' failure. And the trivial argument that they had with the scribes. Jesus pointedly tells the disciples that they failed to cast out the demon. Because of their failure to depend upon the power of God through prayer. Through prayer. Verse 29 of chapter 9. They had exchanged their dependence upon the authority of Christ that sent them out on their mission recorded in Mark 6 for their own power. Their own power to perform the tasks, the tasks of the Christian life, only, only to fall on their faces. Well... Will godly humility invade the hearts of the disciples in view of Christ's supernatural act of defeating an ally of Satan through the humble prayer of the Father's Son? Well, let's see if humility has sunk into the hearts of the disciples. Let us proceed in the narrative to grasp the context of Jesus's, of the disciples' argument about who is the greatest. Jesus and the disciples have passed through Galilee. Keeping silent about their movement, Jesus teaches them alone about the destiny that lies before him. Chapter 9, verse 31. As we read that the disciples failed to understand what Jesus was talking about concerning his destiny to Jerusalem, we read that they were afraid to ask Jesus what it all means. Verse 32 of chapter 9. Hence, they proceed to go to Capernaum, where Jesus had called his first followers, Peter. Andrew, James, and John, chapter 1, verse 21. Most likely, they are back in the house of Peter and Andrew, chapter 1, verse 29. It is as if Jesus is starting his companionship with his disciples all over again. This time, all 12 disciples are present. And this time, they are not going to move all around the provinces surrounding the northern, western, and eastern sides of the Sea of Galilee. This time, their path is to Jerusalem. And the final consummation of Christ's earthly ministry and mission. There, at Capernaum, in that house, Jesus proceeds to ask them what they were discussing on the way to Capernaum. But they are silent. They are silent in response. To Jesus's question verse 34 in terms of the flow of the text they seem to be afraid to respond to Jesus's question because they are just not understanding Jesus's reference about a violent death and rising from the dead but please note something even deeper in Mark's wording here in view that Mark accents the messianic secret more than any other gospel. That is, the demand for those to remain silent about Jesus' supernatural acts and to the disciples to remain silent in Jesus' recent discussions about the path, his path, of purchasing the redemption of his people. Mark purposefully accents the disciples silence here because they do not understand what Jesus is talking about concerning his path to redemption. Mark is telling us that the disciples own failure to understand as well as their fear is at the core of Christ's command that they are not to tell anyone what Christ has shared concerning his future destiny. The messianic secret is intact because of their fear and lack of understanding. Nevertheless, it is at this point that Mark reveals to us that they were arguing among themselves who is the greatest, the greatest disciple? Are you picking up on the providential path of these disciples? First, they argue with the scribes about the reason they could not cast out the demon. In the father's son. And now they are arguing among themselves. Who is the greatest disciple of Jesus? They go from a defensive argument. To justify their own failure. To aggressively arguing about their own individual self-assertive status before Jesus. as we think about their ignorant, defensive argument with the scribes and their prideful arrogance of being the greatest pupil of Jesus's band of followers, I do not want you to miss, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, what in the providence of our Savior's life lies Between, between the two arguments in our text. The one back with the scribes and the one that there is presently having about who is the greatest. Don't miss what lies between as we come to the table this morning. First, as we focused upon in the previous message, stands the pinnacle example in Mark's gospel of what saving faith looks like. What does saving faith look like in your heart this morning? We see it in the Father who has a son with an unclean spirit, pleading with every ounce of his being for Christ's compassion to be poured out upon himself and his son. I believe, help my unbelief, pointing all of us here this morning to the object, to the object of our saving faith, Christ, who takes the hand of the boy who looks dead after the demon is cast out of him and lifted him up and he arose. Chapter 9 verse 27. Christ. Action upon the boy points to the true and eternal event and object of saving faith, which is presented as the second narrative between the between the disciples' two arguments. Christ teaches the disciples that he will be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill. Jesus, and after three days, rise again, 931. Saving faith, rests, trusts, loves Christ alone for the believer's vertical ascent into eternal life and heavenly glory. Away away from petty human arguments of self-defense and self-importance. And do not miss this most interesting progression in our narrative. Jesus takes the hand, hand of the boy and lifted him up and he arose. This is the power And the authority that Jesus has within himself for those to whom he pours out his compassion and love. He does this with his hand of mercy and grace upon this young boy who is experiencing all the effects of the fall within his own body. Watch, watch, watch the staunch contrast that is before us. As we see, he tells the disciples that the hands of men, those who hate. Christ, Those who live with unwavering, rebellious, and callous hearts on earth, their hands will kill the Messiah, who is the only remedy for sin, evil, Satan, death. What a contrast between the hand of Christ. Notice in terms of this singular and the hands of men, plural. I ask you in all sincerity, would you not prefer, would you not prefer the hand of Christ upon you? and your life rather than the hands of men would you not prefer the one who is supremely righteous holy perfect compassionate loving bringing life out of death upon you And in your heart as your full expression of faith. Hopefully there is none here this morning who wants the hands of men upon you. That is a world that is committed to the utterly sinful lifestyle of ungodliness. Flawed in every way uncaring, hateful, seizing life only to bring death. Just look at the culture around you. Congregation. As we noted in a previous message, the disciples' futile arguments point to their present existence In our text today, they are acting, they're still acting like a faithless generation, which Christ is calling out in their failure to cast out the demon in the Father's Son. Do you remember the text of transition from the first part of Mark's gospel to the second part of Mark's gospel. Jesus' healing of the blind man at Bethsaida in chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Remember, Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of the village, put his spit on his eyes and laid his hands On him, 823, if you recall, Jesus laid his hands on him twice, not once, twice, in order for him to see clearly. We pointed out that in this miracle, Jesus was mapping out the path of the disciples coming to a complete understanding of the identity and his saving work of redemption for his people. Do you see it? The disciples are wandering around right now in the terms of where our text is right now. They're wandering around with blurry eyesight. Blurry eyesight. Like Jesus' first touch of the blind man. They are still counted as part of the faithless generation. But this is not so for the father of the demon-possessed son. Again, don't miss Mark's climax of the picture of faith in his gospel in the boy's father. He is a picture of... He is a picture from a faith being blurry to a faith being fixed upon the object of the assurance of eternal faith, being able to see clearly. It is all there. Please listen, congregation. I believe, he says in his prayerful plea, I believe. Put in brackets there. His faith is blurry. His faith is blurry. Help my unbelief, the need for clear and fixed faith upon Jesus Christ. That's his plea. I want to be fixed. With my eyes focused. With a faith that lives. And rests. Upon Christ. Alone. For my salvation. Providence. And the Holy Spirit will take all the disciples. To emulate the faith of the boy's father. That will happen except for judas oh how the disciples at this stage in their lives need a faith that gets over trivial arguments of self-defense without knowing the facts and their own trivial argument about who is the great the disciples as well as ourselves need a faith that will embrace Christ who as the first became last a servant of us all who lived the life of self-denial, although he alone is the greatest. The greatest. Yes, the disciples and all of us need the kind of faith that is resembled In the humble dependence of a child. That Jesus takes. And wraps in his arms. Why? Why? Because what Jesus is about to say. Is about to say. Is a deeper revelation of himself. That will presently presently bypass the disciples but will eventually be open to them and is surely open to us. Congregation I plead with you to follow this this morning. I plead with you to see what Jesus is doing here in the sense that they have no clue what's going on in terms of him taking this child. But we now know and they will come to know. Please. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives Me. Accent that. Receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Verse 37. You must see these words of Christ. In 9.37, with your eyes of faith fastened on Revelation 12.5. That's not in your notes. I spent the morning doing this. (laughs) Connection. Here it is. She gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to the throne. The child that Jesus is holding before his disciples here in the scene in our text is a picture of himself you receive the child you receive me he's making that connection don't miss it is a picture of himself and the humility the humility Of Christ's identity and kingdom of that child. The complete dependence and humility of that child. The one who reigns, who has all dominion. The book of Revelation is telling us get congregation, please. Get rid of the concept of the rod being that which is a sword. That's the history of the Christian tradition. It's a baby. Christ wins the battle through humility. Not as the way the world thinks. He wins the battle in terms of humble the humbleness of the gospel, the humility of the church will defeat Satan and all the enemies. I can't say it any clearer than Revelation 12.5. Christ can't say it any clearer than connecting that child in terms of his own identity. They miss it. They don't understand it. But that's not unusual in terms of where they are. But in finality, let me ask you this morning, as we come to the table, So, are the hands and arms of Christ upon you in your life? Is that the hands you want upon your life? Or are you being governed by his enemy, the hands of of men.